to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. I decided I'd wanted the opportunity to explain to you or share with you some of the reasons behind why we've shaped this service the way we have. Uh, we started this service in September of 2009, and uh, one of the things that Pastor Brady and I were talking about this, he, he said, hey, why don't you take the opportunity and try something uh, with a smaller environment, a smaller group of people, and maybe incorporate some of the elements of the liturgy and things that you've been wanting to do, why don't you do that on Sunday evenings? And so I said, are you sure? And he said, yes. And so we've been doing this. And, um, but it occurred to me that from time to time, it's good for us to talk about this and to say, why, why are we doing this? Because uh, is this just sort of a, a trend? And is this just sort of a, a, a nice thing to do? And sort of old is new again? And, you know, oh, isn't that cute? He's bringing back some of these old things. And I remember that prayer. And so some of you are in here with nostalgia. You know, I, I remember saying the creed as a little you know, what, you know, Catholic boy or whatever. And others of you, this is like, wow, I've never even heard these words. Did John Egan write this? You know, like, no. Uh, anyway, so, so, <laughs> and so it's important for us to kind of say, all right, so, so why are we doing this? Why does this really matter? And last week, uh, I began by talking about how all of us live our life with a certain sort of rhythm to it. And uh, with the help of a piece from Chopin, we, we talked about the manic rhythm in our lives and, and just sort of the, the pace that we live at. And but, but in general, we find a rhythm, we find a way to live that sort of matches uh, the things in our life. But if we're honest, most of the time, the rhythm that our life follows is a rhythm dictated by us. It's dictated by our own activities. Some of you are saying, no, it's not dictated by my kids, you know, and school and soccer and ballet, you know, and I, I get that. I'm, I'm there, you know. Um, and so is there something greater? Is there a, almost as if, it, to, to stay with the music metaphor, is there, a, is there a higher song that we're all trying to say, hey, look, I think we're part of this. This is what God is doing. One of the reasons I've come to love the church calendar is that the church calendar centers us on Christ's activity. If you think about the way the year is structured, we, we spend this, the season of Advent waiting, anticipating for this birth of Christ season, and then we have Christmas, and then Epiphany, uh, and, and then after a while we have, you know, uh, Lent, and then Easter, and then Pentecost, and, we're, and it, we, we're reliving in many ways the rhythms of Jesus's life, uh, and we're saying as his people, look, Holy Spirit, come and make this afresh for us again. Turn our eyes, keep turning our eyes toward Christ. I don't know about you, but very easily in my own life, I find that my rhythms turn, or my eyes turn very naturally uh, toward myself and toward what I want to do and what I, what's happening in my world and, and what's the next, when's the next vacation and when's the next conference and when's the next this and when's the next that. And, and we order our year that way. And there's nothing evil about that. But as Matthew was praying during worship, isn't there something about saying, Lord, help me to be attentive to you? Now, several weeks ago, I, I mentioned this last week, but several weeks ago, I had coffee with the priest of the Eastern Orthodox Church here in town, Holy Theophany, and uh, it's a fascinating uh, conversation, fascinating coffee, and we were talking about just even the church calendar and the seasons of the church, and I had mentioned to him that we had done Lent together as a Sunday night community, 
and he, you know, he was mildly impressed. Um, and he said, these guys aren't impressed by much, because, again, they're singing a liturgy that was written by John Chrysostom in the 4th century, you know, so good for you guys, you're observing Lent, wow, you know. Pat, you know. <laughs> anyway, so, so we're talking about this, and he says, he says you know, f- for us, uh, we, we don't feel that it's up to us to decide what to give up for Lent. So what do you mean? He says, well, who are you? Well, I'm Glenn, you know, I'm a pastor. No, he says, he says no, no, really, but who are you to, to say, this is what I'm going to give up and this is what I'll do? The church will tell you what you're going to give up. It's what we've always given up. And he proceeds to explain it to me. And this is a bit, you know, a bit strong for, for me, but I get the point. The point is, are we in charge of our relationship with God or are we submitting to him in this? Is this really about us being in the driver's seat and Jesus being a faster Corvette? Or is this about us saying, all right, God, I'm coming to you, and so I submit. Teach me to learn the rhythms of what it means to worship you. And if, if I'm honest, the way I want to worship God is the way I want to worship God. And uh, I, I, some of you may know this. I, I, it's, it's funny, but, you know, Jeanette and then Bob this morning. Uh, just today, a couple of you have mentioned uh, some of the songs that I've written over the years, and it, it almost feels to me like a, like a blast from another life, you know, another lifetime ago. Uh, I was a worship leader uh, here and part of the Desperation Band and doing all the stuff. It really wasn't that long ago. It was like maybe a year and a half ago. Um, but um, but I, spent, I spent a lot of years growing up uh, in this sort of, I guess what you'd call a charismatic worship experience. And I want you to know this um, so that you don't say, well, Glenn, uh, man, this works for you. But for me, I really don't like any of this. I, I much rather the, the modern thing. I, I want you to know that I, I grew up in the modern thing. I grew up uh, learning to express my heart to the Lord and, and finding such freedom in that. And I understand, I've come to understand how this developed. It developed because people had come out of church situations where they were just being told what to say, you know, stand up, sit down, fight, 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 you know, just sort of do the thing and, and, and go through the motions. And nobody said, or, or not many of us had people that said to us, hey, the Spirit of God is actually here like, like he's here. Like you don't just have to pretend that he's here. Like he really, you know. And, and so I understand that the draw when the charismatic renewal happened. You know, you've heard from Dr. Stephen Todd, a Jesus hippie, you know, back in the day. I mean, I understand how the renewal movements began because it was the Lord saying, hey, look, when you gather, I'm there too. Like I really mean that. I'm here, you know. And so I, I get that. And many of, the, many of the best, most formative memories for me in terms of growing up in the Lord, uh, were spent in times of worship, were spent uh, in worship services where I would raise my hands and bow my head and weep and cry. I, have, I, I could tell you story after story. My parents are actually here. I mentioned to you that my parents were coming to visit. Here's my dad and mom from Malaysia. They'll be here for a couple of weeks. And, and everything, everything good about me I owe to them. Everything bad has nothing to do with them. But but, uh, but we, we, we were a house where on Saturday mornings, you know, while my sister and I are trying to sleep in, they would blast the latest Hosanna cassette tape, you know. And it was like, give thanks with a grateful heart. And I'm like, no, I want to sleep. I want to give thanks with a grateful heart. But we, we, were, we were shaped by wonderful family prayer times, and I, I've come to love that. But I've realized as the decades have gone on and, and what began as a vibrant spiritual renewal uh, we've now had several decades of this under our belt that I'm wondering how far this ship will float if there is no anchor down. Do you know what I'm saying? I think it was all well and good for many decades because 
It was not very long ago. People had in their consciousness, oh, I remember this from my Lutheran church or this from my Methodist. You know, and everybody had these memories, but they were just now, they were adding almost, if you will, if you'll allow me to say it this way, it's almost like they were recognizing for the first time that the Holy Spirit was present in addition to the sacraments or in the sacraments and with the scriptures and all this stuff. But, but I, I just wonder now as I'm watching young people and young worship leaders and I, and I watch young, uh, the way some of our young people talk and gravitate up towards worship services, I just wonder if we're like that ship that used to be tethered to the dock and someone removed the rope. And now it's just sort of floating. And it's floating and it's floating. And, and, and in a sense, everybody on the boat's having a good time, but nobody's looked up to say, hey, do you see the shore anymore? No, I don't see the shore. But hey, man, life is great. This is an awesome party on the boat. And what I want to say to us tonight as we, as, we, as we explore the subject of worship in spirit and in truth is how can we be a community that understands the life and the vibrancy and the power of the Holy Spirit and yet remains tethered to the dock, anchored to something unshakable, anchored to God himself. Does that make sense? A lot of um, my years were spent thinking about worship as in presentation and experience. How can we polish the presentation uh, so that we can all have an experience together? What I'm so grateful for for Matthew and this team is they don't think like that. They don't talk like that. Much of my thinking was shaped by my own youthful immaturity and my own uh, uh, maybe being enamored with the whole thing and the, the rise of the modern worship thing. And isn't it true that we do experience God when we get together? Absolutely. But the trick with all this is, how do you know when we have? Because we've maybe been in settings where the band won't stop until they're convinced that you've experienced what they've experienced. Anyone been in this, you know? And it's like, well, we're, we're going to keep the music going until I'm convinced that you feel what I'm feeling. And once you feel what I'm feeling, we can all go home. So Lord, please let me out of here. You know, I'll, I'll, yes, I'm feeling it. You know, I want us to use as our text tonight, John 4, this familiar story where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he's talking to her about worship and to say, uh, look, let, let, let's learn a little bit of something about this. John 4, verse 19. And the woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you people say that the place where, uh, where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, a couple of weeks ago when I did the sermon on the Good Samaritan, I explained to you about who the Samaritans were and, and the controversy about two different worship sites and why this Samaritan woman at the well is asking this question. It's because over the years, Samaritans developed their own temple and they developed their own version of the Torah. And Jews in their own Jewish synagogues would, would uh, condemn Samaritans as being these false uh, worshipers. And, and so uh, she, she's asking Jesus, okay, Jesus, look, you're kind of, the Jews kind of think you're, you're Messiah, but here you are talking to me, a Samaritan woman. So now that I've got you, our fathers, meaning Samaritans, worshiped on this mountain, but you people, meaning Jews, say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Most of the time when this text is taught, we stop right there and we say, you see, Glenn, none of this matters. Who cares what we say or what we sing in worship? It's all just personal preference. You like hymns. I like Hillsong. You like the creeds. I like Vineyard. I mean, come on. 
And there's a part of me, I, I, I get that. There's a lot of preference that's, that's woven into this. But listen to how Jesus goes on. He says, you people worship what you do not know. Oh, easy, Jesus. I thought you just said neither this mountain nor... You people worship what you do not know. I wonder how many times the Lord has thought that about me and my worship. You, you're, Glenn, you're, you worship what you do not know. And then he says, because salvation is from the Jews. Now this is, again, an interesting statement. Different interactions that Jesus has with Samaritans. He makes it a point to show how he is continuing. He is the culmination of the story that began with Abraham. When Jesus says the salvation is of the Jews, he's not saying, uh, so too bad for you. In fact, Jesus' message, we, we studied, we've been studying this in Luke, that Jesus' mission was to show how he was opening up the door for, the, for all people to be able to come, regardless of their ethnic or national identity. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, my dear woman, salvation is of the Jews. This God is a particular God. He's not an abstraction He's not a feeling. He's not the nebulous sort of God. It actually matters who you think this God is. It's as if Jesus is saying to her, listen, this God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're tethered to a story. You're anchored by a narrative. This salvation is of the Jews. And then he goes on, but a time is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and the people who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called Christ, and whenever he comes, he will tell us everything. You, you almost wonder if the woman's sort of feeling out of her depths. You know, like you ask the question to the professor, and the professor's like showing you that you, you haven't even begun to open the textbook. So, you know, and she's saying, well, uh, listen, man, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything. And Jesus says to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. In other words, this time, this time that is coming, this time of when people will worship God in spirit and in truth, this time has begun. And so tonight, as we talk about this subject of worship in spirit and in truth, what does it mean? And, and in particular, the two things I'm going to focus on tonight is why do we have the creed and the communion as part of our worship? Again, Glenn, is this just you uh, reacting? Is this just you following a trend? Does, does this matter, or can't we just do whatever we want and say what we want? Does it really matter? I think there are many ways to have our worship be worship in spirit and in truth. Don't hear me say tonight that the creed and communion are the only ways to do it. But what I do want to say is to tell you why, how these two particular things, especially the communion, how they center us, how they root our worship, how they anchor us. And so we begin with this. <clears throat> the creed is interesting because uh, we, we talk about this when we say it each week, you know, and I, I have no idea uh, what some of you think when we say it, you know. I've heard, I've heard from some of you that, wow, I just really love it. feels substantive, feels old. It is that. Uh, almost 1,700 years old. First written down at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Revised a little bit in 381. Uh, and it is, it is significant. But I want to say, say three things tonight. And the first will be specifically about the creed. The second will be about both creed and communion. 
And the third will be specifically about communion, okay? The first is this. The creed reminds us of the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The creed reminds us of the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, if you struck up a conversation with someone at work tomorrow, uh, or probably not tomorrow, if it's a holiday, but on Tuesday, and you said, hey, do you believe in God? Most people have a certain idea behind the word God. You know, our language matters because language links to a certain way of thinking. Language is part of consciousness and concepts, and how we think about things is oftentimes revealed by how we say them, or maybe the other way around. Maybe what we say shows how we really see the world. And when you ask someone God, or you say God, what comes to mind? Most people will, will say something like, well, higher power. Uh, maybe the, the, the force or the being that started it all. And there's something true about that. But I want to point out that when the scriptures introduce this God to us, they don't leave it with just God. They show us who this God is by telling us his interactions with a particular people. Let me say it another way. Ever wonder why the Bible isn't written as just sort of this thing of, okay, chapter one, God. This is what God is like. These are his attributes. Study them and memorize. Okay. Chapter two, uh, this is what God says about you. You know, I mean, what? Chapter three, these are God's promises. Claim them, put them on your refrigerators. Chapter four, no, just messing. But why isn't the Bible written that way? Instead, how do we learn about God except by his interactions with particular people? This God is the God who creates the heavens and the earth. This God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think it might be actually an interesting challenge to you. I've embraced this challenge over the last year of my life and found it not only difficult but profoundly uh, impacting on my prayer life. And that is this. Try to address your prayers to the specific person of the Trinity that you're talking about. You say, well, Glenn, I mean, which, which one? I mean, I don't, well, just, you know, pull out the Nicene Creed. So God the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of things both seen and unseen. So, okay, so, Father, thank you. I, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but almost every prayer I pray, especially the public ones, I mention Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because... I'm not praying to ambiguous, abstract concept God. I'm praying to a named God. Does that make sense? It's not as if I'm saying to, um, I mean, imagine if I talked to Adam Maliski, the drummer on Sunday night. Imagine if every time I saw Adam, I just said, drummer, sup, drummer? How you doing, drummer? Drummer, you're getting married next week. Drummer. It just seems rather foolish. Because drummer is a function, it's a category, it's a concept category. Does that make sense? But his name is Adam. This is the same thing. God is a concept category. It's the category for the higher power. But if we say Father, that the Almighty, if we say Jesus the Son, if we say the Holy Spirit, now we're talking about a deeply personal God. Does that make sense? And think about praying that way. Think about praying, Father, thank you for the way that you created the earth. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the Son. Thank you that you can, thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you're here. You know what it helps you see? It helps you realize that worship is not a dialogue. It's a dance. Worship is not a dialogue. It's a dance. 
If you see God as this one sort of abstract concept being, then there's God, there's me. Hey, thanks, God, for what you've done. High five, God. You're pretty cool. You did this. Now I'll do this. And it's this dialogue. But if there's three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then this must be more of a dance that we're joining The early church fathers had this word that they used to describe the Trinity. The word is perichoresis, and we know these words, peri for around, and choresis from choreography, like movement, dance. And so the way they explained the unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was almost like this movement around, this movement around. Imagine this, a great dance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and worship is us saying, here we are, Lord, Woo! we're joining this. We're caught up in this. Why? Because we're good enough? No, because of Jesus the Son, through the Holy Spirit, we join the communion among the Godhead. Now this is, listen, I'm looking at your eyes and I get this. You're like, well, Glenn, (laughs) I don't know what that means. I know. It is a great mystery. My challenge to us is that we embrace the mystery of it. To say, look, I, I don't fully know what this looks like, but I know that it's much more than me and God dialoguing. It's me and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all of us together sort of caught up in this dance. Worship is not just response, it's participation. It's not just response, it's participation. And that's what the creed does. That's part of why we say it each week because we say this first paragraph, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker. And then we get down to Jesus, the Son, the Savior, and then we get into Spirit. I want to point this out too. Actually, no, I'll save this for the next point. All right, let's go to the next point. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> the creed and communion roots, let's see. You know, Jeff, I told you that to add that S, but now I'm looking at it, and that's bad grammar. The creed and communion root our experience in an event. Uh, so it's not your fault. It's, that's going to go ahead and be my bad. Um, the creed and communion root our experience in an event. If I stood up here and... Um, <laughs> you're amazing. That's pretty quick. That's pretty quick. If I stood up here and I said, uh, you guys, uh, my parents are amazing. I mean, they're incredible. I mean, my parents, they, they, my mom taught me this, my dad taught me. And if they weren't actually here, you'd never know if I was telling the truth or not. But I could give you a really good experience in talking about my parents, right? I could say to you, oh, oh, I just, they're just awesome. I mean, I love them. I mean, Wow, my parents. You say, all right. Do you know anything more about them? Do you know any stories about my childhood yet? No. From that? No. All I've given you is a good experience because I've told in a similar way, if I said to you, my wife, oh, Holly, oh, I love my wife. Oh, my wife is so great. Oh, my wife is so great. Oh, I love my wife. I mean, I really love my wife. Oh, how I love my wife. Oh, how I love my wife. Oh, you see where I'm going with this. You still don't know anything about my wife. I believe in emotion in worship. I believe in experience in worship. But if that emotion and that experience is not tethered to an event or a person, and I'll explain why I said event in just a moment, then all we're doing is having a mass sentimentalism experience together. Maybe one of the most threatening things for the Christian church today, the modern church, is that We are prone to sentimentalism. We want to feel this. 
so much so that we don't know if it's real. I want to tell you something about the creed that you may have noticed. Every paragraph about every person of the Godhead describes a specific event. What's the event connected with God the Father? Creation. What's the event connected with Jesus the Son? Also creation, but salvation, the cross. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. Right? Do you know why it mentions in the creed, Pilate? <laughs> Was it to like stick it to the Romans? <laughs> no. They added, they were so specific to say, Pilate, as if to say, this really happened. We didn't make this up. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Three days later, they said these things to mark it, to sit it right in history and to say, this happened. The guy who taught me, who taught him, who taught that guy three generations back was Paul or Peter. You know, do you know what I'm saying? These guys who wrote the creed were guys who were just a few generations removed from eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Paul says, I think it's Paul or maybe it's Peter, who says, look, we were eyewitnesses of these things. We didn't make this up. It's rooted in event. And then the Holy Spirit, it says in the Spirit, he has spoken through the prophets. How do we know? What, what, is the, what is the event the Spirit is associated with? It's the now event. It's us. It's all of us. To, it's the church. It's the scriptures. And so when we talk about our experience of God, it is much more than saying what I feel. It's saying what I know. And how I know is because of these events. Untether it. Un- lift up the rope from the dock and the boat's going to float away. We're not looking to just have a good party on a boat. We're looking for the thing to be anchored. Does that make sense? We're looking for it to be rooted somewhere. How, why is it that we can pray and cry and shout and dance and know that we're not making it up? Because this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spoke the world into existence, came down for our salvation, rose again on the third day, spoke through the Scriptures, and is at work in us now. Does that make sense? That's why we have these things as part of our worship, to remind us. Otherwise, man, we could get together and we could actually do quite a bit more production-wise to give you a better experience. We could do quite a bit. I mean, we've all been to like a good movie, right? You've been to a good movie that was a good experience. Let me ask you this. You ever been to a movie that was like so good, you left the theater crying? Right, it's like sad, maybe a tragic movie, and you're like, oh, man. It's just, it's just so, you know, some of you, that was Toy Story 3, you know, which, <laughs> which we did not take our children to. So it, it was just kind of scary. Anyway, so, so, so imagine leaving Toy Story 3, and you're oh, so sad. You got away to college, and the toys didn't get burned. Five minutes later, hey, man, what do you want to eat? What? What happened to all that emotion? Why does that emotion not last? Because it's not rooted in an event. It's a movie. It was a great experience, but it's not rooted to an event. What happens after you've been at a Christian service where you had a great experience at some traveling show, and I'm not against traveling shows. Often I find myself part of them. But what happens when you leave this thing? 
And you're like, oh, gosh, God spoke to me. Oh, I just I felt the Lord. Hey, man, are you hungry? Because we had an experience, but that experience was not tethered to an event. I would suggest to you that worship that is not rooted in creation or salvation, you can finish that sentence. We just got, we, we've got to keep things as the centerpiece of our worship. The church, since the beginning, kept communion as the centerpiece. The focal point of the service is not the preaching, bummer for me. It's this, which leads to this third point. What is it about communion? Communion reenacts the story of our salvation. Communion is a way of reenacting the story of our salvation. It reminds us that everything we say and do is because for us and for our salvation, you came down from heaven. That his body was broken, his blood was shed. This happened. Because it happened, our worship matters. Our worship becomes rooted in this. Our worship is a way of reenacting this. Um, when you think about, you know, what is it that qualifies an action to be a sacrament of the church? You know, why couldn't, man, why couldn't, uh, you know, like, um, I don't know, like, why couldn't we get together and just make pottery together of what we think God is? Or, you know, oh, that's all, you know, whatever. There's lots of cool expressions of worship. But my question is, is communion just an expression of our worship? Or is it the centerpiece of our worship? If it's just an expression of worship, it's like, well, I mean, man, you like the bread and the cup. I kind of like the pottery thing, the joy, you know, joy tunnel or, you know, whatever. You know, I like this or I like that. And you just do your, you know. This is not an expression of worship. This is the centerpiece of our worship because it reenacts the story of our salvation. Nothing else does that the way communion does. This is why we say the words of Jesus himself every time we do this. To say, look, what we're doing here is not just because we thought it was kind of cool and it's really culturally relevant. <laughs> Actually, I think of all the things we do at church, this might be the most confusing one. What are they doing with the bread and the cup? What is this? You know, there are two ways to look at relevance. One is to focus on, is it relevant to us as a people? The other is to say, is it relevant to who God is? Maybe another way to say this is with the word authentic. We use the word authentic a lot, and so much that it sometimes gets muddled, like a lot of words. Freedom, you know, authenticity. And authentic is often used to say, true to Myself, true to me, I'm just being authentic. And that, that certainly is one meaning of it. And that certainly is a part of our worship. I would suggest to you that worship in truth is much more about being true to who God is and what he has done. It's not just true to yourself, it's true to the reality of a thing, true to the design of the thing. If I invited you over to my house and say, hey, man, I'm going to give you some authentic Mexican food. I'm like, oh, awesome, man, authentic Mexican. Just have you over. I'm like, yeah, man, uh, I don't know. Here's some uh, 
baked beans and some pasta. Maybe throw in some like roast chicken. You're like, dude, that is not authentic Mexican food. What are you saying, man? I did this with all of my heart. I mean, I, I was sincere about this. I sincerely thought that the And in the end, the authenticity, the worship in truth, the truth that matters is not the sincerity as uh, you know, that doesn't matter, but the thing that overrides it is is it true of God? Can we is it possible to come to a place and really mean something and think we're saying something but we've it's just sort of a floating experience. It's like watching a good movie. You had a great time. Communion says, wait, 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 wait. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And because of that, we say that this week, therefore we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. You say, well, Glenn, how is all of that in the bread and the cup? Isn't communion just about remembering the past? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you from now on, and here's the phrase, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Did you know that every time we take the bread and the cup, we are not just looking back, but we are looking forward? Did you know that every time we take communion, we are not just saying, hey, thanks, Jesus, that was pretty cool. We're saying, Jesus, everything began to change at your death and resurrection. History itself began to be redefined. This age began to come to a close, and your age to come came to birth. A new day began to dawn. Something spectacular, miraculous, something divine happened, and it will culminate when you come. Every time you take communion, it's a past remembrance and it's a future anticipation. It's saying that, this is going to sound weird, but it's saying that the future has actually already happened. It's saying that we've seen what God's going to do. God's going to bring resurrection. God's going to bring restoration. And because of that, we know it happened when he died and rose again. And that's why, and we know it's going to culminate when he returns. That's why John says, has Jesus saying it is finished twice. Did you know that? At the end of John's gospel, Jesus on the cross breathes his last and says, it is finished. But Revelation 21 John also has this vision of Jesus returning, wiping away the tear from every eye and saying, and now death will be no more. Behold, I'm making all things new. It is done. Communion places us in between the two. It is finished and it is done. Communion says we remember that in his death and resurrection, he defeated sin and defeated death. And we remember that one day he'll come again and we're going to drink this wine anew. We're going to have a feast with Jesus the Messiah when all things are set right. Communion's not just a nostalgic, oh, isn't this sweet? Let's just remember, oh, Jesus died. And we need to sort of watch movies that work up the emotion to remind us of, oh, how horrible his death was. Yeah. All of that's fine, but it's much bigger than that. 
It's not just sentimentalism, feeling bad that he got whipped, feeling bad that he died. It's much bigger than that. It's recognizing that God broke in, that he died, that he rose again, that he's coming. And every time we gather with believers, break the bread, take the cup, we are proclaiming the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. I don't know about you, but I get a lot of emotion when I think about that. So I'm not saying, oh, there's no emotion, please, none of this crazy food. No. <laughs> there's a lot. There, that's reason to dance. That's reason to rejoice. That's reason to hope. I think it was this week's issue of Newsweek or Times. Said, it was an article on the science of optimism. Did you see it? It said, we are rational beings and hope is unrational. And yet we seem to be wired for it. Oh, I, I laughed when I read that. I thought, I'll tell you why we're wired for it. Because the Father created a world that our sin tried to infect and undo. But the Father sent the Son, and the Son began to take, came and took the weight of evil on Himself, drained the poison out of the deceiver's sting, took the weight of our sin and our evil, rose again in victory, and when He comes again, all will be set right. Of course I'm optimistic. Hope is a Christian virtue because of communion, because of this, because I know what this says to me. We're getting ready now to say the creed and prepare our hearts for communion. And I am um, quite obviously focused tonight on the second half of the phrase, worship in spirit and in truth. And the talk was all about truth. I take as my assumption that again, we've had decades of re-emphasizing for us that the Spirit is here, that we, ought, we do worship in Spirit, that, that, that there's a reality. It's not primarily about this mountain or that mountain. It's wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, and we know that He is where we gather. We could do a whole separate teaching on that, but my sense as a pastor is that we understand that. We here, we understand that. My sense is we need to reach back and put that rope back on the dock and tether us. You know what I'm saying? And that's why we do this each week. Please, I, 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 um, I hear so often from people, oh, creed, communion, oh, Glenn, it's very trendy. I want to say, how can something so old be trendy? <laughs> if I wanted to be relevant and cool and trendy, we wouldn't have this as the center each week. I believe in having music that is our style. That's why we have it. I believe in having moments where the Spirit of God comes and works and breaks, and we do that. I'll tell you, the reason I love the way Matthew Valentine and the team lead worship is because of the way they're sensitive, to, aware of this. Think about the songs we sang tonight, Yahweh. I'm blanking out the other songs, but they were all good too. <laughs> be thou my vision, be thou exalted. Songs that remind us that we're not just here having experiences and expressing our hearts. We're participating in the Trinity, communion of the God, and what a mystery. We're rooted in an event of creation and salvation. And we're reenacting the story, the drama of our redemption. Christ died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. I, I, I want to end with this thought that 
you, you may say, uh, well, Glenn, I, I, I kind of get the ideas, but I'm not sure how all of this works. And I want to tell you that that's okay. That's okay. That's part of the mystery of this, that there is somehow the Holy Spirit here in the midst of this, making this alive. That He is present when we take the sacraments. He is present when we sing. How does this all work exactly? Don't know. But this is why we have these things anchoring us, tethering us. 